Good morning, you Wu-Tang Keans. We'll start today's podcast with a poem that was submitted to us by singer-songwriter Mick Hocknell from the band Simply Red. Remember them? What radiant hope will assure my forlorn gullet Dragged by the cuffs of my curls across the shop floor tiles Guff and lint on the arse of my Ben Sherman shirt Fifty quid for a tennis racket that's taken the piss It wasn't shoplifting, it was protest Thank you very much for that Mick Hocknell So how are you getting on? What is the crack? Have you been enjoying yourselves? There's a lovely lick of cold in the evenings. And that acrid, pungent promise of turf smoke in the air that disappears slightly every year. And I think it disappears because just all people, elderly people, die. They're the only ones left burning turf in the fireplace. Um, I've just had a, a ferociously busy few days there. Uh, the past past five nights, I was just I was just doing a string of fucking live podcasts. I did two in Vicar Street and one in Ulster Hall. And my guests were David McWilliams, the economist, Bernadette Devlin, the revolutionary, and Roddy Doyle, the author. And there were three fucking amazing nights. And thank you everybody for coming out. They were truly it's beautiful. Uh, the podcast hug was achieved. Great conversations. I can't wait to show them all to you. Um... What have I got? Yes. This Saturday in Wexford in the Spiegel tent I've got a live podcast. This Saturday the 13th of October I believe. And there's some tickets left. But exciting news because I didn't have I didn't even speak about this podcast. The the li- I, I'd forgotten about it to be honest. But um, I can confirm that my guest is Tommy Tiernan who is a comedian and a comedian and philosopher Tommy Tommy is special he's got an amazing mind but me and Tommy did a live podcast before and it didn't record so we're having a rematch in Wexford on Saturday so come along to that I'm looking forward to that um, after the Tommy incident I got my shit together regarding how I record live podcasts and invested in a bit of kit to make sure that when I put a live podcast out, it sounds brilliant. Um, a few of the live podcasts have sounded a bit dodgy. The Vincent Brown one recently, it was okay, wasn't great. But um, this week I'm going to I'm going to have a, this week's going to be a live podcast. I'm going to play for you the interview with the economist David McWilliams, and. The reason being is it's, it's it's budget week in Ireland, you know, and the government are after coming out with the budget, and it's kind of shit. 
especially in the context of a housing crisis, they seem to have favoured in, uh, ruled in the favour of landlords, which is just audacious and shocking. But, yeah, David McWilliams is one of the most foremost economists in Ireland, and on top of that, he has he has a gift of of si- simplifying it so that it's understanding. So, you're going to enjoy this, and the audio quality is top notch too. I will be releasing the Roddy Dial podcast uh, shortly enough over the next week or two also because Roddy has a film out in cinemas called Rosie which is about the it's about the housing crisis I suppose but it's a, it's a personal story about a, a lady called Rosie who's living in emergency accommodation with her whole family and it's a phenomenal film so please go and see Rosie in the cinemas Um. So before I get into the live podcast, what I want to do is our little ocarina pause if we can, so that it doesn't interrupt the interview or the conversation. So here's the ocarina. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby Today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy. So during that pause you would have heard an advert for some shit. Or maybe you didn't. I don't know. Um also this podcast is sponsored by you, the listener, via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast 
if you're enjoying the podcasts and you'd like to contribute monetarily to them being made please give me the equivalent of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month on Patreon if you feel like it if you don't feel like it you don't have to you can listen for free it's your choice um, have I anything else to say yeah so the the fucking those gigs were unreal they were sold out incredible fucking audience it was just they were perfect so there's going to be two more gigs in Vicker Street uh, on the 8th and 9th of November for which there are some t- tickets left so please come along to them they're going to be great crack too so here you go here's the live podcast conversation with David McWilliams thank you that was based on a true story um, I'll bring out my guest um, Economist Broadcaster uh, His nickname is the, the Darky Shelver For his penchant of sticking yolks directly up his anus <laughs> It's David McWilliams Thank you it's a queer introduction. <laughs> sure, what are you going to do? How's that mic for you there now? It's grand. That, it's grand. Going it's now? great. God bless. God bless. Um, so, you're here to promote a book, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have a new book out. I have, yeah. Which is called uh, Renaissance Nation. Now, I first came across your work when I, I was a... I did economics in school, right? I did economics for the leaving cert, and I just didn't enjoy it, because I'm terrible with numbers. I fucking hate numbers. And I was intimidated by economics. It was, as it was taught to me in the leaving cert, was, like, I liked the odd thing with, like, giffing goods and things like that. But it was, once it got close to the leaving cert, it was just a load of graphs and numbers, and it scared the shit out of me. Then I got my hands on the Pope's children. And it was my first ever introduction to sociology, economics, it was the first time I saw economics and said, this is fucking interesting. Something, especially how you use, like, um, like what I would say about you is you use the gift of storytelling to tell kind of complex things about economics, especially how you create, like, like your books are almost like a sitcom. You create stock characters. I'm just thinking of how I get the kings of Cork into the next one. <laughs> I don't. I think, particularly Phil, I like it. Um, what are they? They'd just be buying feather earrings, man, and making their own jackets. I don't know. There's still a few of them around Galway. You'd meet a lad like that down in Galway. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, that's, like, what I found with the Pope's children was just, you'd have different characters, like Breakfast Roll Man. And st- actually, interestingly, with the Breakfast Roll, I was doing a bit of research for tonight's podcast, and I ended up on the Breakfast Roll Wikipedia page. And breakfast, there is, it, there is, but here's the best part. It says breakfast roll, and then it has the name in Irish. No. Because it's obviously being recognised as, like, Irish cuisine. Because <laughs> why else, like, why else would it have the name in Irish? Like? And I didn't know how I felt about it. Like. Um, but, like, for, tell us, a who's Whoa, breakfast roll, man? Like, uh, and the other thing as well, just about the Pope's children, just to, uh, if you haven't read the Pope's children... If you, if, if you read it now, it reads like science fiction, genuinely. Yes. It was a scathing, not, I won't say scathing, it was an accurate analysis of the utter excesses of the Celtic tiger. And to read it back now, 
is it's it's science fiction. It's like a fantasy land of people owning two cars and people not caring about money, and it's insanity. Like you, it, it's, it, you, I can't relate to it anymore. You know. Well, I mean, it was it was funny. You know, it's like like when you're writing. The best thing is when you go out and about and just open your eyes. And I kept seeing these sort of characters. It's, I didn't expect you to ask me about Breakfast Old Man, but I kept seeing. Uh, you know, you particularly it was like 2005, 2006. Uh, 2004, we started start thinking about it, and uh, I could see these. I remember once going to the hot food counter mm-hmm. in a spa, and I was really intrigued about who was there. And every single time I'd go to these places, you'd see the same sort of blokes, five or six blokes, and they'd come up and they'd. I was always intrigued about what Irish people put in baguettes. <laughs> no, really, because I remember there was, a, there was a company called Cuisine de France. You might remember it. They started the revolution. Right, so they... Cuisine de France. <laughs> Cuisine de France, anyway, uh, bought the, uh, the rights to make these little baguettes in Ireland, and apparently they hired French bakers initially to make sure that... In Italy? What the fuck? Initially, uh, to make sure... <laughs> it's a Dunleary accent, Okay. <laughs> Very rarefied. And anyway, uh, but what was really interesting, I was always intrigued at what the conversations between you know, the French bakers and the Irish bakers would have been about what would end up in the baguette. And of course, the French guys would be thinking, oh, I think there's going to be camembert, yeah, and a yeah. little bit of smelly cheese. And then you went and saw what was in the baguette. <laughs> and they'd be like, you know, two rashers, three sausages, you know. One of them fried eggs now, please. And I just thought, hold on a second, these guys are real. So your idea about economics is true. I mean, I did economics so at school. It was a cultural it's, invention. It's basically to bring economics to life. You have to realize that economics is just us, blind boy. The, yeah. When you go around and you think about what the economy is, and lots of people, and I teach it in university now, and lots of people say, oh, it's very difficult, and it's maths, and it's this, and it kind of freaks kids out. But if you actually think of what the economy is, it's only the aggregation of what all of us do every day. So you make a little decision, will I buy, will I spend, will I save, will I do this? And when you add all those up, that's the economy. So therefore, to see the economy for what it is, you have to try and understand human nature, us. And the way I like to do this is just to mooch around and I have a little, it's kind of pathetic, it's kind of weird, I have this little notebook. This is before before notes, before Google Notes, right? A little notebook. And I just keep my eyes open and these characters come to you and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. And you probably know it yourself, sometimes you've got a character that's not yeah. working. But sometimes, you know, the breakfast roll character, it just worked because everybody knew him. Yeah. And he was just there. And, uh, and he was eating rashers in his baguettes. But, and it was, and, and then, but and then the of beauty course, of it for me is like he's eating rashes in his baguettes, but he's doing this because he, he has a white van outside. Exactly. He doesn't have time to go to a restaurant. Absolutely. And, and all this other stuff about, you know. Yeah, no, and I remember a mate of mine who uh, worked as an electrician. He said, look, David, you know, you're writing about this stuff, but come out and I'll tell you what it's like working as a subby. And we went out to Navan and I had, uh, he said, look, if you want to see what's happening in Ireland, he says, you know, don't go t- to... Dublin City, don't go to Dublin 4, don't go to all these places. He says, come out and I'll show you where Ireland has been built. And he yeah. says, it's basically, it's Navan, 
It's nice, it's gory, it's towns outside of Cork, it's towns outside of Galway, Clare Galway, Ballincollig you mentioned, Ballincollig, when I was a kid, my granny's from Cork, yeah. it was a village yeah. with an army barracks in it, yeah. and it became a huge, huge suburb. So we went out and had a look at those things, and this mate of mine took me around, and that's where those characters come from. But the idea, Blind Boy, is always to try, and if I could make a few more of those Leaving Cert kids, yeah. feel that economics is valuable and worth it, it would be a job well done. Because it is important, and as you said, the way that, what I dislike so much about the Leaving Cert is if you think about, I've always been intrigued with this, if you think back now as you get older, you realise that there's so many different types of intelligence and so many different types of clever people. But when I go back to school, and I think about when I was in school, and you know, I can think about the fellas I sat beside, I can think about the gang I had in fifth year and sixth year, and I think about all the amazing brains and intelligence that are out there now, and I think, blind boy, that in our schooling system, we only rewarded one type of yeah. intelligence. So the, the kid who could go in and absorb all the stuff into his brain or her brain, and then you know, put it in a compartment, and then in the middle of June, write like fuck, right? Yeah. That type of intelligence, which is, which is a really, it is a type of intelligence, but that's the only intelligence we reward. All the other kids who are in the class, who are lateral thinkers, who are skeptical, who are quite different, those kids not only don't get rewarded, but get punished every single day. And school then becomes for so many people, and this is back to your economics, the Leading Cert, a process of small humiliations and I, I can really feel that, and I can see kids going through it. And it really, what, what really amazes me, Blind Boy, is that when you get older, you meet so many incredibly clever people who left school feeling very stupid. Yeah. But the corollary is also the case. Lots and lots of actually quite stupid people leave school feeling very clever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and... <laughs> And I, and, I, and I think that, that that's why the Leaving Cert should be questioned, not just from economics, but from every aspect, because we're leaving hundreds of thousands of kids behind. And that's a huge problem, you know? And, and you see it all the time, and, and then... It, then Jesus, now that you have me going, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> um, but, like, but then you think, like, you know what I'm, I'm always amazed by is when the, those the kids that, with that vertical intelligence, you know, they're like, they're like kind of walking filing cabinets, yeah. you know? And uh, then they go to university and they do well, and then they do well, they do well, and then they get, they get jobs in big companies, in the banks, and in insurance companies, and in the civil service. And, do, and then something really happens, is we call it, uh, in economics, it's a, call, a thing uh, called con confirmation bias. Yeah. That we like people who think like us. Yeah. Now think about what happens then in a society like Ireland. So all these kids are told all the time, every single day, since they were little kids, right, that they're really clever. Like they were, the teacher told them they're clever, and the, the, the priest or whatever told them they're clever, because their mommy told them they were clever, yeah. which is... I was trying to explain Irish mothers to an American audience about four weeks ago. And, and it was an American audience of a, of a, of a certain uh, genetic background, let's say, uh, and I said, the Irish mother is the sort of mother that makes the Jewish mother look unambitious. 
<laughs> I was trying to explain to a whole lot of Jewish people. There's yeah, yeah, Irish yeah. Woman. So you know, but, you, but think, but the, 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 there is a point. So you think all these kids, and they go through, they go through, and because our education system tells the kids there's one right answer, right? The kids who are rewarded by our education system also believe that they have that one right answer. Yeah. And if you think there's only one right answer, and again, as you get older, you realize there's loads of right answers to every question. But if you believe that you have the right answer and your status as an individual has been dominated since you were a kid by being the smartest person in the class, what you hate to be, blind boy, is wrong. Yeah. So think about this. Then you get all these people all in the sort of commanding heights of the economy in these good jobs. They can't admit they're wrong. And then you put in this idea of confirmation bias. So basically what happens is you, you say, oh, no, 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 you're clever. You've got all the answers. No, you're clever. You're clever. No, 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 you're clever. No, you're so clever. Jeez. And eventually you say, oh, fuck it, just have a job with me, right? So we employ people who think like us. And then what happens in a small country like this is you get groupthink at the top. Yeah. And that's what happens here. And I believe it starts really early. And I look at my own children and I look at their mates and they come into the house and they're a wide spectrum of gorgeous kids, right? But lots of them every day are getting up. Like tonight, kids have the fear on a Sunday. Yeah. Because they've got to go into the system and the system is rewarding a certain type of brain and that becomes very difficult to unravel. And that's why we make these big mistakes in the economy, not because people are corrupt, or maybe they are a bit like that, or corrupt, but it's because at the top, everyone thinks the same. Mm -hmm. And this is a big, big dilemma. And in a small country, this is a bigger dilemma, because the mistakes can be bigger. Um, have you ever heard of uh, a fellow called Howard Gardner? No, but you're going to tell me about him. <laughs> Gardner is, uh, he, he's an educational psychologist, but he presented the theory of, of multiple intelligences and it's kind of quickly replacing the IQ model, you know? Yeah. But which is great. What's so, so beautiful about multiple intelligence is that it's, there's no such thing as someone being smart or dumb in multiple intelligences. It's like the, you look at a person's intelligence as you have different components. So there's yeah. visual spatial intelligence, numerical intelligence, linguistic intelligence, physical intelligence. Like, yeah. When I started uh, studying Gardner and taking that view on board as well, I found it made me a nicer person because no, I remember... Not I, possible. I, I, I remember applying it to David Beckham. David, David Beckham was put out in... Like, he was presented as a thick man. He was presented by yeah. the media as a thick man. And under Gardner's model... He mightn't be great with his linguistic skill, you know, his ability to get ideas from his brain to his mouth isn't great, so we perceive that yeah. as him being thick, but his physical, uh, physical intelligence is off the chart. Yeah. Like, if you think of, now I know nothing about sports, but what he can do, we'll say, with curling a ball into a net, here's me now talking about sports. And I, love fucking I love it, I love it, I love it. But the mathematics and physics involved in his brain I'm turning to into do Dunphy that. already, it's brilliant. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> But it, 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 what yeah. it does is it, it, no, it immediately strips your assessment of another human being. It takes it free of judgment. I, this, all, this kind of stuff comes to you. It comes to you, you know, when you're a parent mainly. My, my daughter is just on the leaving cert, is dyslexic. And she'd go to school and she'd come back to me, I remember as a kid, like really young, and she said, Dad, like, 
And it would break your heart. She said, I can't read. She says, you write all these books, and I can't read the simple stuff. And I can't process it. And the way my head works, every time they give me a page with stuff written on it, I, a little part of me just dies. And I cannot do it. And I remember thinking, all the people in my class in school in the 80s, right, who were maybe dyslexic or learning difficulties, we didn't diagnose them. So they were called stupid. Yeah. And then this humiliates kids. And this is what leads to, I think, a lot of kids having problems. Because, you know, when I look at my daughter now, she can sing. She's really good at piano. She's expressed herself in lots of different ways. She Just her brain wasn't working in this linear fashion. And we've improved dramatically in terms of understanding this. But when I go back to when I was a kid, loads and loads of people who might have been dyslexic or dyspraxic or some small problem not just working in the way the school system wanted them, and that destroyed them. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. And it's interesting when you talk about economics. You know, economics is one of those weird sciences that bizarrely takes out humanity from the equation yeah. when humanity is actually what it's about. And that's why I think economists get things wrong. But because they don't understand this crazy thing called the human. What I enjoy about your books is like you put the humanity back into it. <laughs> you, it's, it's like you talk about economics, but what you do is you, you, you do make it a sitcom like. <laughs> with, I'm glad. No, it is different good. Characters. No, it is good. And, and that's the how characters I all of a sudden then the was able is, to. It's, it's nice to write because you, 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 know, you begin to. It makes writing easier because you're, you get in and you see the person. And like, you know, you just observe what's going around you and these creatures come to you. And sometimes they work and they make what you're trying to explain that little bit more comprehensible. Can you tell us about some of the, we said the new characters, like th this new book that you have now is like a spiritual successor to the Pope's children. It's yeah. what's happening right now. So like, what new characters have you got in this book and well, what did they represent? It came to me on the, 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 writing the book on the morning of the repeal referendum. And I was, uh, interestingly voting in the Dominican convent in Dunleary, which shows you, you know, uh, that you're actually going to vote in a religious institution. And that struck me as kind of odd. And uh, what I remember from the first repeal referendum, I was too young to vote, but Dunleary voted, I, th I think it was the highest uh, against the amendment uh, vote. And we at the time, I know people felt that it was a real outliner outlier. And then what happened after the referendum was you realised that Dunleary was not an outlier at all. The whole Inish yeah. man voted the same way as Dunleary. Yeah. Which I think is amazing. So I thought that maybe a good way of looking at the world would be look at, take the first abortion referendum in 83, take the abortion referendum now, take the first Pope's visit in 79 when there was a big crowd and there was a slightly smaller crowd the last time. And there's <laughs> probably more people here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to look at that blind boy and see, okay, what is that 40-year transition? And what is really amazing is that you don't realize how unbelievably dynamic this country has been over those 40 years. And because it's, and, and we have problems, and I'm sure we're going to talk about them, and there are serious economic problems that could be fixed. But the broad spans of the last 40 years has been phenomenal. So it's looking at that 
that uh, that last 40 years. And then, of course, the characters. I was uh, I'm intrigued at the explosion of GAA in South Dublin. Yeah. Right? When I was a kid, there was no hurling, right? I can't believe that Dawkey are the fucking hurling champions of Ireland, <laughs> right? I'm from there, right? When we were kids, only mad fellas hurled, right? And it was like, it was, it was soccer territory and then rugby. And then maybe a bit of gah, there was kind of hurling aristocracy families. Yeah. It was a genetic thing, right? Uh, and then I was really intrigued. I went down to Kula, which is this huge GA club in Dalkey. And when I was a kid, I used to play soccer in Dalkey United, which was the soccer club. And there was a small GAA club beside us called Kula. Now Kula is sponsored by Davies fucking stockbrokers. <laughs> right? Okay. So Davies stockbrokers, the poshest company in Ireland. So this is the sort of shit that interests me. And I went down... Uh, Undercover, obviously, uh, <laughs> on a Sunday or whenever they play. Or whatever. And, uh, and I was looking at, and I went down to, to take notes on this phenomenon. Where does it come from and how did it happen? And, and there was a sort of woman I kept seeing came out of, usually of a Nissan Qashqai <laughs> on a Tuesday night with a clipboard. And you know this is the sort of woman that could have organized the invasion of a small country. You know, you, know you, just, you just have this thing. So I was intrigued about this type of uh, suburban person. And uh, I went back, like yourself, I went back reading uh, when Bill Clinton was voted in in America, they created uh, this swing voter that they were trying to say, who is, who is so basically, as you know, in America, there's like 48% Republican, 48% Democrat. So it's all about the little bit in the middle. And in 1992 and 1996, where Clinton was voted in significantly, they identified this suburban mother called the soccer mom. Yeah. And she was voting for Clinton. And Clinton, oddly enough, was speaking to her. And <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> so I was looking at this woman and I just thought, the Irish government is a Schlitter mom, right? And, and you just look at them, and you now, if you go around, go to a G8 club this weekend or during the week, and you'll see these persons. So then I started to, to, uh, to research a wee bit more about Schlitter Mom, and, uh, and then I started finding out about, you know, basically in, in, in South Dublin, where hurling has become really popular, what you basically have is these uh, couples where either, well, what interests me was, in the 1990s, there was a very interesting economic study done on who benefited most from free education in Ireland over a 30 or 40 year period. It's really interesting. Uh, by a guy called Cummins, uh, who was working in University of Galway, sociologist. And they were trying to track, free education was introduced in the mid 60s. Mm -hmm. So who actually benefited from it? And it's really phenomenal that the single biggest indicator of how a county was benefiting was the number of small farmers in the county. So the sons and daughters of small farmers in Ireland benefited enormously from the education, free education, which is interesting because at the time they thought it was going to be Dublin working class, yeah. but they didn't take it up in the same numbers. 
And then I thought, okay, and then I investigated a bit who they were. So basically, what, what, in the 1970s, a sort of a, a national school teacher aristocracy yeah. moved into Dublin, right? Playing hurling and things, right? Yeah. And then their kids have become hyper-educated and have become the upper professional class. And because house prices have gone so ridiculous, the only people who can now afford to live in South Dublin are this hyper-professional class who took with them a love of GAA. Okay. And the really interesting area is that the, I've identified the sons and daughters of small farmers from East Galway are the most successful people in Ireland. Isn't that amazing? Fucking hell. So and it's, Michael it's re is, reverse canonization of the culture. It's, it's, <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's the, the chapter's title is called The Cultureization of Dunleary. But it's interesting, so that's the sort of stuff I like, is like, how, where does it all come from? Where does Schlittermom come from? Because she didn't exist when I was young. Why is she into this sort of stuff? Who is she? And then you go back and you see there are real economic reasons. Yeah. And they happened, so for example, it's that East Galway constituency is Pat Rabbit and Eamon Gilmore and a huge amount of people. So it's, it is, that's the way I like to look at the economy. It's, it's, what, what you're doing is it's... A more sinister version of what you're doing is <laughs> what Cambridge Analytica did. Ah, Jesus! <laughs> no, but like seriously, Cambridge Analytica were using software to find yeah. Slittermom. Well, Slittermom's fella now is, uh, yeah, but you don't need software, just open your eyes. And, it's, and her fella, you know, is, is Quango Man. Quango Man? Yeah, you might notice, you know these fellas who've got that all these That sounds like Quango. a very bad superhero, like. I tell you. <laughs> what the fuck does he do? But he, he's, again, you, you notice it, like this is another thing I've noticed, you know, over the last, even since the crash, the, the explosion in Quangos in Ireland. And What's a Quango? It's one of these things that, it's, it's, it's when, for example, when this, the state has a, the, the amazing thing about Ireland is there's no accountability. So when there's a, <laughs> And, and, even worse than there's no accountability, every crisis presents an opportunity for a quango to grow, okay, to investigate the crisis. So I just noticed that there's a whole load of these guys and where you'll see them is around, uh, on a Sunday morning, on a very light bike. Yeah, okay. Uh, Sounds like we're trying to spot a rare heron. It is. It is, it's like a rich savannah. You have to sneak up on the fuckers. And then you... <laughs> um, but you, I don't know, have you noticed this explosion in fellas of my vintage on, on carbon bicycles? Yeah. On a Sunday morning, right? And the, the, the ratio of, ma of weight from man to bike has got to be 100 to 1, right? <laughs> so you're a big fat lad. Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. ticker bouncing out of him, and he's up on this little small thing. And these things intrigue me. Like, where did they come from? Because they didn't exist five or six years ago. So, so I, 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 I went undercover <laughs> in Enniskerry, which is a funny place, at eight o'clock. You have to go, Black, I'll take you, take the bag off the gown, and nobody will recognize you. And we go, and that's, these are the things I'm interested in, is who are these people, what they're doing, how they've changed society, how they see the world, how they vote, and their biases, and their, 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 I wouldn't say prejudices, just their notions and how they've changed the society. And it's, it's a bit of crack. It's better, it's better than doing equations for a living, you know? Of course. Um, we have a, a potential intermission coming up where you can go and get a pint. Would you, would you like that? Yeah. See, I can't tell because it's a Sunday. <laughs> 
Um, would you like an intermission at a half nine where the, the bar opens and maybe you could do a wee? <laughs> Does that sound nice? Okay. Um, you fucking, you predicted the economic crash and people told you to fuck off. <laughs> but, like, yeah, you, you, yeah, be, yeah. you became, <clears throat> I remember seeing Max Kaiser, Max Kaiser who's on uh, Russia Today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he did a whole piece about how you were shunned from television <laughs> because you were too well, dangerous at a time after the recession. It's kind of mad, you know. Uh, I think what happens in Ireland, uh, if you come out with ideas that are against the mainstream or the consensus, your ideas go through uh, three phases. Uh, the first phase is what I call the open ridicule phase, where you're laughed at. All Dave, the David time. Ike, or you David know? Ike. And uh, I remember going on the Late Late Show years ago, and like with fucking gobshites on the panel, yeah. and you're just thinking, and, and you're, in part of you in your head is, you want to sit up on the Late Late. Was this front, during the boom now? In front of you, this is during the boom, and it was all yeah. going bonkers, and in front of, well, I couldn't, because my mother was watching, but you feel like saying, ah, fuck, like. anyway. Yeah. So the first uh, phase is this sort of open ridicule phase, and then the second phase when your ideas get a wee bit of traction, is the, the violent opposition phase. Yeah. Didn't Bertie call you a party pooper? <laughs> Slightly worse than that. Uh, Bertie, that, it peaked uh, for me with Bertie. Uh, Bertie's obviously litigious. Bertie, Bertie uh, speculated as to why I didn't go and commit suicide. Oh, he did indeed, Which yeah. was a very bizarre thing. I remember my Wouldn't mother- get away with that in 2018. My mother, my mother uh, it's true, but my mother rang me and she's, uh, from Cork and a retired teacher so you know that time she said to me she goes Bertie you her now he's after mentioning you inside in the dawn <laughs> and I said yeah I know mum but I wasn't really that complimentary and she says well I didn't care he didn't mention Mrs McCarthy's son so <laughs> 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 you know Cork mothers uh, and that's the second phase, is violence and opposition. And then you get to the third phase, where we are now, which is the one I really love, which is the everybody pretends they were on your side all the time yeah. phase. Yeah. And that's, that's you, you know it. It's, yeah. uh, and you just have to deal with it. That that's, that's the way of the country. It's got loads of great things, lots of good stuff going on here. But there is a tendency amongst the mainstream establishment to really try and crush dissent. And in a, in a, not in a very, very skillful and subtle way, not in a sort of a old Soviet way, yeah. where you just take the fella out and you end up very cold in Siberia. You know, where here it's more insidious. And the, a lot of the media, certainly at the time, not so much now, but were involved in that game, I you think. You were seen as, you, you were portrayed as someone who was He's just saying controversial things to get attention. But what you were saying was, there's going to be a property bubble. The economy is going to crash. And you were seen as a lunatic. Yeah, well, the thing is that... Uh, but now, truth to that, actually. the most popular question I had tonight, now everybody is going, can you tell us when the next crash is going to be? <laughs> but, the, but the naivety yeah, yeah, of the country yeah. in 2002, like, people well, were just like, how can it crash? That's impossible. My house is class. Well, no, the difference is... <laughs> I know. I'm not even driving the house. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, but I mean, it was, it was just, I, the, again, these are things, these are the common sense things. I'd, luckily enough, I'd worked abroad for most of the 90s, and I'd seen the same sort of thing happening, the banks borrowing loads of money, lending out to people, people then chatting to each other. And I, I remember uh, it was at a, a mate's wedding, it was about 2000, and uh, 2000, 2001, and I went, I knew there was one of those moments, I went to the Jacks, and this fella uh, came up and he's totally scuttered. And you know, the, the elbow against the urinal pose, <laughs> which doesn't really inspire confidence for the next utterance. No. And he said, uh, he said, you'd be fucking mad not to load up on houses. <laughs> I said, really, really? And then I noticed people I knew were buying this, that and the other. And then for one of the TV programs, which was, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's also quite harrowing. Uh, the madness was so great that I said, look, I'm making a program about a potential property crash, which was the book of the Pope's children, or the, the documentary of the Pope's children, and there was a big piece. And these guys were selling property in Bulgaria. And uh, I said, look, we, we, we wrote to them and said, would you mind if we came and followed you with a camera mm -hmm. uh, to tell the story? Because we believe that this is a bad thing for people to do. And um, They were selling it to they Irish people. They were selling people. to Irish people. Yeah. Your man says, not at all. How many do you want to come? And I said, well, this mightn't look very good, but they were so caught up in their own sense that everything was going to be fine. And we went out, and this was, this was, this was, it was in summer of 2006, so just when the madness. And what really amazed me is that the people who were on the flight, it was a charter flight to a place called Varna, and we talked to a couple of Bulgarian people. They were selling the flats for 128 grand to start with. And the take-home wage in Bulgaria was 280 quid a month, right? So we talked to the Bulgarians, and they said, what are you doing, man? Our houses cost us a few grand. And it was, what, the worst thing it was, it wasn't, you know, the big developers, and it wasn't rich people. These were people who had been persuaded that this was their pension. And they were school teachers, and they were nurses, there were people in the civil servants. There were brickies, there were people in the trade. And that really, it kind of pissed me off because I thought these people are gonna suffer. And yet all the time when you went on TV or tried to say this is gonna happen, there was a, you're unpatriotic. Yeah. Put on the green jersey was the one. Yeah. But I don't, I remember we started that, this conversation about the leaving cert and the group think. Yeah. You gotta go back there. It's not that anybody is particularly more greedy or much more of a shyster than anybody else. It may be true, but in the aggregate, what happened here was groupthink. And that groupthink comes from not putting critical faculties in place early for our kids. That's what I really believe. And I think that's what scares me. Do you feel there's also an element of defense mechanism too, though? I mean, if you're... It's like telling someone who, like, yeah. when someone's smoking fags, right, there's a period in, in your life as, as a cigarette smoker where you just love it. And it's class, and it's grace. Yeah. And when people say to you, that'll give you cancer, you're like, fuck off. Yeah. You know it is, but it's like, yeah, just yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah, is it yeah. a bit like that? Yeah, it is. It's, but it's also, it won't happen to me. The hu human nature, there's all sorts of psychological stuff about, you know, basically we think it's going to happen to the next fella. But it's not going to happen to us, or it's going to happen over there. This time it's different. Uh, and it's the same, it's the same with, with any of us smoking fags or whatever. You think it's not going to be me. And it's human nature. So I, my sense, blind boy, is that you shouldn't get so 
angry about what happened here because a lot of it was just our own human frailties, which all of us have all the time. And inclined, you know, if we didn't have those, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. If you think about it, like there was an Italian communist, a fellow called Gramsci, mm-hmm. uh, Antonio Gramsci, and he said that life is a conflict between the, the pessimism of the intellect, so that we're trained to be pessimistic, and the optimism of the will, which is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Yeah. What gets out of bed in the morning is this small sense in our head that, you know what, tomorrow or today is going to be a bit better than yesterday, or yeah. tomorrow is going to be better today. So when I look at what happened here and the housing and all that, my sense is that it was more a reflection of our own frailties. And these are the things that make us beautiful, as well as make us a little bit silly. And I think that's, what, that's the lesson that I've learned from it all. Um, one kind of vibe I get as well about the tiger is like, there's a post-colonial vibe to it. Yeah. There's a drinking game, by the way. Whenever I say post-colonialism, you're allowed to have a drink. Um, but they, there was a sense of we've never had nothing. Yeah, exactly. or, or as well as that, the, obsed, the Irish obsession with, you know, fucking... I, I was saying, like, like if, if the Bull McCabe was around today, he'd, he own, about, he'd own about ten flats on Gardner Street oh, and yeah. would have it full to the brim of Brazilians. <laughs> and they'd, we'd be occupying the Bull McCabe's house. Uh. <laughs> but we would. Yeah. Because it's that, the, the, the exactly. farmer class. It's like, my land was taken off me by the Brits. Before that, my grandfather was in the penal laws. I'm fucking taking this house. I want 10 of them. But you can blame the Brits for everything. It's brilliant, isn't it? That's post-colonialism, man. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> But I think you're right. And there is this element of don't wreck me buzz. People were, you know, people were buzzing and, you know, it was like a big group trip. And then some Egypt like me comes in and says, I wouldn't do that if I was you. I mean, you know, I wouldn't take another one of those. Um, so, so I, uh, you know, I, 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 I can understand people say, yeah, fuck off. Yeah. You know? And there is, it is, because I, in, in the, you know, I, I think that there, there was a sort of a, a group trip and everyone was coming up and, the last thing you want is somebody saying, I wouldn't do that. And that was me, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but and somebody what, had to do it. And were you treated, was uh, Max Kyle's assessment right? Were, were you shunned away from RTE a little bit? When shit went really fucking bad and yeah. you would have been the man to go, no. this is why it went bad and it was them. I, no, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't get, no, no, I think that, I think that, you know, uh, I'm not sure actually, I'm going to think about that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, they, they did, it kind of felt like that. But I mean, that's grand too, you know. If you were, if your mental health was predicated on decisions in RTE. <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ! Tell me about it. I think we leave it there. Exactly. Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> here we'll we'll uh, have a little intermission for 15 minutes, and you can go for a pint or have a slash or whatever. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Are you nice and settled? <laughs> so one thing I wanted to talk about, there, there was a, a particularly terrifying moment around, it was around 2000 and, about 2010 or 2011. Go on. The, I remember reading the Minister for Finance at the time, Brian Lenehan, and it was a particularly... He was basically ready to make some very important decisions for Ireland just as the recession had 
the, the, the crash had happened. This was at a point where the government were seriously considering whether they need the army on the streets to stop people from taking mm -hmm. money out of cash machines. Mm -hmm. Seriously, it was like, we could, the banks could go bust, basically. The Minister for Finance knocks on your door at one in the morning, eating raw garlic out of his pocket. Yeah, it was, uh, it was unusual, to say the least. Can you tell us about that terrifying um, moment, please? <laughs> um, it, was, it was in 2008, and um, I had been on the Today at One, which is that RT political programme, about two weeks pr prior to it, and the Minister of Finance, who I'd never met before, was on it, and the Fine Gael spokesperson on finance, and it was very clear to me that basically what happened in Ireland is the economy was actually set up to fail, blind boy. If you run an economy like this, it's not a matter of when it all collapses, or if it all collapses, but when. And what we did was, this is why my writing became increasingly more, I don't know, maybe dramatic towards the end. I was saying, look, basically when, when your banking system borrows loads of money in order to lend to the punters, what it does is it borrows money for three months. So you've got to roll over that loan every three months. But it's lending to you, blind boy, for 30 years for your mortgage, right? So basically, if the bank starts to run out of money, they can't sell the houses to generate the cash to pay the people they've borrowed the cash from. So banks run out of money. That's how they go bust. And the more we were borrowing, the banks were borrowing. You could see this. And who were they borrowing they, from? This is amazing. They were borrowing from British banks, German banks, French banks, American banks. It was an entire Ponzi scheme, okay? And what was happening in Ireland was initially they were borrowing for one year to lend to you for 30 years. By 2007, nobody would lend to them for more than 30 days. So the whole world was saying, these guys are going bust. And our government kept coming out and saying, there'll be a soft landing, we have loads of money, everything will be kosher. And the problem is how bank runs happen in the modern world is not, when you remember the 1930s, you see a fellow going to the bank and saying, give me all my money. What it actually happens is it's, most of it's done by just somebody on a screen. Yeah. So the people who lose all their money last are the average person. Mm -hmm. And all the financial players were getting their money out of Ireland all that period. And our central bank was just saying, don't worry. They were almost saying, it'll be grand, mm -hmm. right? And I was sitting listening to this, and I'd seen these bank runs before, because I worked a little bit in Asia in the, the mid-1990s, and I saw how this happens. And I remember going on this program, and, and the presenter was talking about everything except the banks. They were talking about social partnership and the trade unions, and regional policy and building roads. And, and I said at the end, I said, look, this is all very interesting, but our banks are going bust and we need to fix this. And the minister said, you can't say this. This is dangerous talk. Remember that idea you're talking down? And yeah. I said, look, um, so that was the first time I, I, I met him. And uh, Now, he also he had terminal cancer too. I don't think he had it at the time. So why was he eating the garlic? Search me. Because <laughs> he was creepy. No. Uh, Okay. <laughs> I thought there was at least, yeah, he'd I read know, online was, that you really, eat raw garlic for... It was really, it was very strange. And then uh, one night, I, my phone rang. Out of and, his pocket. Uh, <laughs> it was very strange. And, and he, 
he came to the house and I've never had a politician in my house, let alone a minister. Uh, so it was kind of quite surreal and, uh, and I didn't know him. And I, I kind of, it's funny, blind, but I felt really quite sorry for him because he came in and he was obviously knackered. Yeah. Re he was really tired and he obviously was getting conflicting advice from all over the shop. And he sat down and we had a chat and I said, look, you're a couple of years too late, first of all. Mm -hmm. You know, we were in the middle. The thing about a crisis is, if you look at, the only thing you don't have in a crisis, in any crisis, is time. That's the thing you don't have, right? So the question is, the most important thing in a crisis is, how do you buy time to try and figure out how bad the situation is, right? Fucking hell. And, that's, and I said that to him, I said, the problem is not money. I said, the problem isn't money, per se. It is money, but the problem now is you don't have any time. And money is leaving the Irish banks, and the more you guys say there's no problem, the more they're going to go bust, and the more people are going to lose everything. Because when a bank goes bust, you know, people don't forget this, when a bank goes bust, all the deposits disappear. Mm -hmm. And you arrive there, and you've nothing. And he said, look, what do you think is going on? And I said, you need to figure out some way to buy yourself time in order to create... I mean, I basically, I said, look, you're not going to be sitting here and saying we've got a good, a good option and a bad option. In a crisis, you have a very bad option and an even worse option, mm -hmm. right? And they were saying, the central bank was saying, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll get money from the European Central Bank. And then the ECB said, no, you won't. Yeah. And then they said, oh, shit, okay. Uh, and then they said, oh, we'll get money from Merrill Lynch. And then Merrill Lynch went bust, yeah. okay? And we'll get money from the American financial markets. They said, no, you won't. And there was no money anywhere. So I remember talking to him and saying, look, you've got to do something temporary that stops the fear that people have that there's no money in the banks. That's how you stop a bank run, mm -hmm. that you basically tell people there is money there, right? And you've got to but do this for a short you, period of time. You've got to lie. You've got to, no, what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to say to people, we are going to provide the cash for you. Yeah. Okay? Even though we you don't going, know where it's coming even from. Even yes. And you've got to then buy time over a year or two. I remember telling them you should guarantee these things for about two years. And then, in that period, calm the crisis down, go to the European Central Bank, deal with all the creditors, and buy yourself time. And he headed off. I met him once again after that. And then I never met him again. Then it just, I didn't see him again, uh, in the sense that we never had another meeting. And then what amazed me is how the whole thing unraveled that the guarantee became a five-year guarantee and then a 10-year and they guaranteed everything and went on for ages. But I kind of, what, what, what was quite, I think your, your first expression was terrifying, was the fact when you realize that the people who are running the place haven't a clue. And um, it's really terrifying. Because I mean, you're just sitting there going, oh. And... Then you look at some of the individuals. Like he was the Minister for Finance and you had to explain to him junior cert level economics. <laughs> yeah. That's like the Minister for Finance. But, you know, maybe, maybe that comes from a sort of entitlement. You know, we go back to that idea, you know, like, if you're, there are certain political families, let's say, in Ireland, and they're kind of like an aristocracy that we've yeah. created within our republic. 
So the Ralph Fuller was a politician, and the Ralph Fuller's Ralph Fuller was a politician. You know, again, it's, it's, it's like a genetic inheritance, like sickle cell anemia or something like that. And <laughs> maybe not. But, and that's the interesting thing, that some of the people who end up in these jobs don't seem to have the qualification to do the job other than the job that Ralph did. Mm -hmm. And they might even be getting votes because we voted for his dad. I think so. So, I mean, again, you know, when you, when, you, when, you, when you look back on these things with 10 or 11 years of, or 10 years of uh, hindsight, things that become apparent to you is how did that end up being the case? You know, why did those, the establishment wait so long and then panic so profoundly when they didn't have to? Mm -hmm. that, that's what I kind of tend to wrestle with. And then when I think about now, you think, well, are there other issues going on now that could be similar? And we're saying, don't worry, it's going to be grand, it'll be okay. Um, do you think the way that loans are being given, like, are they more responsible now? Like, the, the, last, the, the problem the last time is there, there was no regulator. Or well, there the was a fella. There was a, yeah, yeah, but, like, <laughs> he was wearing a turnip on his head and he masturbating wearing, on a yeah, clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, um, the, <laughs> fucking hell. That image has just stuck with me, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, so now the difference is, Brian, but this is very interesting, is that the people... There's a lot of credit in the system here now, but private equity firms, largely American, called the vulture funds, yeah. have become banks here. Yeah. And that is what has happened. So all the good assets of the country have been sold very cheaply to people who don't really want to own them. And by that I mean... They're There's going to be questions and answers at the end. By that I mean, I, but I, I mean their long-term interest is to sell yeah. Ireland, you know, because they, they've no interest in owning apartment blocks here indefinitely. So we've got from, gone from a very strange position where we have a crisis that was caused by Irish banks borrowing too much, lending to Irish people and buying expensive property to a crisis that may well also end up with Irish people buying the same expensive property off different types of banks. And These a, tra a transfer of wealth as a result. And a massive transfer of wealth out of the country. Can, like, what is, a, what is a vulture fund? What is a private equity fund? Well, it's just, it's basically very, very rich people getting very, very richer. <laughs> no, it was, well, what it is, is it's uh, initially very, very wealthy people. When, when you get a massive crisis, like a global crisis, right? and the banks lose money, what you find is that they then won't lend to anyone at all who hasn't got really good collateral. Yeah. But the only people who have really good collateral after a crash are the already very wealthy. Yeah. So crashes amplify inequality because of the way in which lending happens after it. So what you saw in Ireland was that the people who had the opportunity to borrow money between 2011 and 2015, let's say, were already incredibly wealthy funds. And they have bought large parts of the country. They've bought commercial real estate, they've bought private real estate, they've bought residential real estate, and they now sit. And the rents that we are paying, this is what is hard to get your head around, 
the very high rents that people in this room are paying, a lot of that money is going straight out of the country. Mm -hmm. And I heard 50% of the housing market is owned by these vulture funds. Certainly 30% worldwide, having gone from zero in 2010. So by what you're describing there, is it fair then to say that it is in the interest of the richest people in the world to continually have recessions? That's a, look, very and, and, well... And is this why the 1% is getting bigger and bigger? Yeah, I mean, basically what happens is that very rich people make lots and lots of money in a crash, not in a boom. The average dude always thinks in a boom we are getting richer. But in fact, what actually happens in a boom, particularly if it's credit-driven, is we are actually getting poorer, but we think we're getting richer. And then what happens is you get a crash, and this is just this happens all the time. You get a crash, and the assets that you bought for 100 quid, let's say, you now sell for 20 quid, okay? The person who has the 20 quid tends typically to the person who's already very wealthy. So there's many, many very rich people who just sit in the sidelines and wait. Mm -hmm. And they had, in Turkey, I was in Turkey last week, Turkey had a crash recently, South Africa had a crash, Argentina. So they just wait and they deploy their, their money. And the interesting thing is the system not only tolerates this, but encourages this. I mean, the interesting thing is the best way to rob a bank is to run one, right? No, I mean this, like, banks, they go bad from the inside out, mm -hmm. right? It's all to do with behavior, right? And this is something that hasn't been fixed since the global crisis. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that what you're seeing in Dublin with the rents, with hot property prices, you see the same thing in London, you see similar things in many capital cities, not half as bad as what we have here, but we could, it can be fixed here, is a reflection of this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, 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 it's what is wrong with this kind of cowboy capitalism that has emerged. Is, is this neoliberalism? Well, the interesting thing is like, liberalism is a very good thing. You know, to, the liberal world, liberals, liberalism gave us the vote, liberalism gave us equality. Liberalism is a really a very, very strong force for good. But economic liberalism is ne the famine. Your, your idea of neoliberalism is where the interests of the very, very wealthy become conflated with the interests of the average person. And that's never the case. Mm -hmm. um, one thing as well that like, like when you're describing we'll say the, the, the way this wealth gets transferred. Um, what also goes along with it, which pisses me off, is a culture of lowering of standards of uh, also work standards, zero hour contracts. Yeah, um, that's, that's where you like have that, to vote that against goes along that. It. But you really have to, I mean, I was doing- Is it insane, right, to go to the government and say, vulture funds are illegal in Ireland? No, it's not like insane. Like, has a country done that? Well, no, what you can do, what you can do is you can say, look, hold on a second. There was a moment in Irish history, right, where these people took advantage of a situation. But that moment is not here anymore. So, for example, if you take in a country like Switzerland, Switzerland is not the bastion of, you know, Marxism uh, and any sort of... But in Switzerland, you're not allowed to own two houses. You have to justify why you want to buy a second house, Right. Uh, in lots and lots of countries, there are significant rules about buying 
accommodation. Let's not call them houses or assets. Let's go accommodation, right? And I think that we in Ireland are on the cusp of some something that socially is very worrying, which is that a whole generation of people are getting locked out of accommodation. And what really amazes me is that the social ramifications of this are re really significant. Like when I was a young fellow, right? Let's say you could, and you could get a job, job paid reasonably well, okay? You could save a little bit, you could move out with your mates, you could move in with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You could begin the process in your late 20s of, of growing up, of leaving the nest. And now if you look at what's happening in Ireland, that is not possible. And that is a function of the housing market. And so unless we see the housing market in the context of people's lives, and not in the context of prices going up or down, or property pages or whatever, you'll never get to the fact that accommodation is the issue. And many countries, like Ireland is amongst the least populated country in Western Europe, and we have the highest property prices. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And it only makes sense if you understand the market is rigged here. Mm -hmm. And it's a total scam. And it's been a scam for a long, long time. And this, we have as a society to get up and speak about it in language that is comprehensible. Not that, oh, it's supply and demand and this, that, and other. It's not. What you have is a system that has been built up over a long, long time to reward property hoarding. Yeah. So with land, you can do two things. Land is a resource. So you can either use it or you can hoard it, right? Mm -hmm. And if prices go up, right, what happens is this is why the market doesn't work. When prices keep going up, people who own land, economists will say, oh, well, don't worry. You know, when the, when the, when the price goes up, uh, the supply will go up. You all hear this nonsense all the time. It sounds really good, but it's actually wrong. What actually happens when the price of land goes up, the people who own land say, do you know what? I'd be mad to sell today. I'll wait for next year or the year after and make 20 or 30% more. So they hoard. And blind boy, this is what we have to stop. Because if you hoard land when prices are going up, supply stops, yeah. deadness tracks, you don't build anyone, anything, and people panic. So you've got to come in and say, change it. And it's really simple. So, like, so you penalize hoarding land. You say to people, look, if you want to... Like, that was my wife who clapped first. <laughs> She's heard this shite before. Imagine living with me, it's pox. Anyway. But... We, we've a huge, we, we've a, a, a decent movement at the moment, Take Back the City. Yes. But yes. There's, two, um, there's two issues I'm finding uh, with it online. Like, I obviously support Take Back the City. The people, there, there's two types of dissenters. There's the ones who are kind of on the fence going, I'll give it a lash, but uh, what are you looking for? Then there's, and this is the most depressing thing, when I argue with people online about Take Back the City, the people who have an issue with it, they're not fucking landlords. They're people who, they're, whose rent is very, very high. And I, I, the only explanation I can have is they're people who are actually under the boot of the renting system, but they view themselves as rich people who haven't happened yet. Yeah, yes. Well, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. That's you a know really what I mean? good... Because like like, their rent is the same as yours. But it's like, it's like when poor people vote for Trump. Yeah. They feel like we're rich people, we're just not rich yet. Not but yes. we're going to be like that guy. 
which um, is kind of shocking. But uh, but but it's a simple question. Two two was a, a, a take back the city protester. They get asked, "What are you looking for?" Right? You as an economist, how okay. do we? What you got to do with a, with a movement like take back the city? I think is an entirely legitimate movement because you know, for example, before before I came in, I was over in the clock yeah. across the road, right? And I came out and I was just looking. So you look at this street and there's shops on the ground floor. But if you look above most Dublin streets, they're entirely vacant. Nobody lives up there. So we're not utilising the land of the city. Take, for example, Copenhagen has a footprint exactly the same as Dublin between the canals. Okay? Copenhagen has a population of 600,000 in that footprint. We have a population of 100,000. Right? And, yeah. it's be and Copenhagen isn't some high-rise dystopia. It's an intensively used city of maybe six-story buildings. Right? So the question is, why don't we use it? And then you think, okay, we don't use it because there's no incentive to use it and there's no penalization for dereliction. I mean, dereliction is just vandalism yeah. for the landowning classes. That's yeah. all it is. And I, and, I, and I think then... And we, then, we do then, have a dereliction tax, but it's, yeah, it it's not enforced. High. No, it, it has to be high. Like, taxes, like, some, like a dereliction tax, has to be something that somebody who owns a building, let's say here on Thomas Street, right? Yeah. Has to think twice about. If property prices are going up by 20% and this individual is sitting on a building that is worth notionally a million quid, just let's... Right? That means that every year his property is going up by 200 grand. Yeah. And the government say, well, don't worry, we're going to put a tax of five grand on that. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. Right? So what you do, you have to, the tax has to be material. And, but it can't all be tax, because then you have to do this idea of rewarding different types of behavior. If you think that leaving a, house, a building derelict is bad behavior, and good behavior is doing it up to rent, yeah. okay, then punish the bad behaviour, but reward the good behaviour. Yeah. Say, look, we, you know, we, you, we will give you a tax break or whatever it happens to be in order for you to make this land available for accommodation. And it's not hard. But I worry about the take back the city because they're constantly being harassed by the mainstream. Yeah. That this is a radical movement and this is a leftist movement. And, you know... And unless you create a logical narrative that you can sell to people broadly, it's very easy for these movements to dissipate and to actually lose momentum. So what I would, you know, when you, you said what can well, they what do? What I, I say to people is I say, these radical leftist hippies that you see, you might think they're radical leftist hippies, but they're protesting for you. Exactly. You're you know? absolutely right. And that's, that's the idea in Ireland that we don't seem to see that, like, we're all in this together. Yeah. At some level, right? That if you have, let's say, so if you have kids, right, in this city, very soon you're going to hit up against this dilemma. So even if you think it's nothing to do with you, it's got everything to do with you. And also, if you don't get housing right and you don't get accommodation right, you don't offer people dignity Basic dignity. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the crew of this is like 75% uh, uh, like of our government are landlords. 
do you think, like, is, is that... Am, am I being an international no. shape-shifting lizard man? <laughs> or interdimensional? Like, is, no, look, look. And, and they say that, they, like, oh, 75%, they said possibly a good proportion of the other 25% who aren't landlords are, but they have the, the property in their children's names. Yeah. Well, look, I think the, even the more telling thing is about two or three years ago, I did a, a documentary um, on the same RTE that we're talking about uh, called The Wealth Divide. And uh, it was something that I'd always got a, had a feeling. You know, you, you have a feeling that maybe the numbers are going to tell us that there was a huge or significant wealth divide, not income, but wealth divide here. But when we started exploring it and doing it, uh, the figures were phenomenal, that basically the top 10% in the country own more than 43% of the wealth. And of that, 87% is land and property. Mm -hmm. So that's it. So we cannot create a society that's more democratic, and what I mean by more democratic, is that people have a stake in it, if you don't give people wealth. This is the, you know, this is the key, that for, for somebody in Ireland to believe in the country, you have to have a stake, is this is my little bit of this country, yeah. and I have got something here, and if you have wealth division like we have, which is not out of the, the interesting thing, it's not out of the ballpark for Europe. Most European countries are the same, but our population is younger, so it's a different dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, I think you need to address it as a matter of urgency. I was writing yesterday in the paper that the, the budget's coming up on Tuesday, right? Yeah. And it's all shouting and roaring and Pascal this and blah, 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 right? And Leo socks or whatever the fuck they talk about, right? <laughs> and, but I was looking at the numbers, right? So it costs 50 billion quid euros to run this country. 50 billion every year the government raises. Uh, they raise 26 billion from income tax. Yeah. So from the average person, right? They raise 6 billion from excise, from fags and booze, right? Yeah. They raise about another 20 billion, no, about another uh, 19 billion from VAT. Do you know how much we raise from housing? Go on. 500 grand oh, out of 50 billion. Fucking hell. Every year. So that's it. So there What's it is. What's going on there? There it is. You know, so, so what I'm saying is, the funniest thing, the, the, the kind of nerd in me, you know, the fellow who, you know, the, it's all great writing about Schlitter moms and breakfast rolls and yada yada. But, but I, I, there's, well, there's numbers at the bottom of this. Thing. How much of, like, does everybody in this room have a rent book? Like, a, a lot of rent is going into the black economy. Yeah. But again, my point is, if this can all be fixed, that this is what interests me because, look, economics is, it's, it is a, the art of the possible. It is about doing things better. It is about Ireland going from a country that was 28th on the UN Human Endeavour, Human uh, Development Index, sorry, in 1979 to being fourth now. So that happened because the economy began to work better over the last 30 years. So it's, it's a big deal. And if you can get that right, and if we can go from a country that was exporting people and was poor and was the, rich, the poorest of the rich to a country that's taking in immigrants and is reasonably wealthy now by any standards, we can fix the housing problem because it's simply a management issue about changing the incentives for people to build and not to hoard land. That's it. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. Um.
like the housing crisis and all it encapsulates, including like the homelessness crisis that goes along with it, like that is clearly a fucking national emergency, right? Yeah. How do you feel about the government like terrified of calling it a national emergency? Like, what, what's that about? Um, you know, I don't know. I actually don't know. What I'm just saying is, look, if you look around Europe, right, lots and lots of countries uh, have absorbed in big population shifts and have housed people because they've taken out the notion that housing is a rapacious asset that you can actually extract rent, unquantifiable rent out of people. They've actually said, look, you can't do this, right? So if you look at Germany after the Second World War, entirely destroyed country, entirely destroyed. They had to rebuild their housing stock from zero, and they did it, right? If you look at Denmark, if you look at Netherlands, all these countries have extraordinarily brilliant cooperative movements in housing, right, that basically run like a credit union for, for, for housing. They, these are is, basic things. Is that like things. a condominium type of thing? Or? No, it's like, it's like, for example, uh, like you take a country like Austria. Um, Austria, the Austrians, I think over 40% of houses in Austrians are co-ops. So you join a cooperative, right? The cooperative then, you, you have a piece of paper say, I am a member of this co-op. The co-op builds the houses. So the banks are not involved. The developers are not involved. So every bit of, well, you're skimming off the money, is not involved. And they don't have house price inflation. Like, let's look at the countries that are doing it right and do what they do. Yeah. That's it. It's not that hard. Um, Ireland's corporation tax, the low corporation tax, right? Yeah. People say, oh, if, if, if you get rid of that small corporation tax, the, uh, the companies will leave. Now, there's a part of me that thinks... You could raise it. We're, we're, it's, it's our collective sense of low self-esteem. We do have, <laughs> like, a fucking well-educated no, English-speaking workforce. Like, you know what I mean? And, yeah, it's true. Uh, years ago, I, on that issue, I wrote a, a book called The Good Room. And it's a, it was about Irish psyche. I don't know if anybody here's granny had a good room at home. Like, my granny had a good room that was so good, I wasn't good enough to go into it. <laughs> And do you remember those, right? And it was kept for good people. Yeah. Right? And uh, it was my granny down in Cork. And I've always been intrigued by this. And, and I, have, I have triplet uh, cousins, right? Uh, born in the 60s, so pre-IVF triplet cousins. Very exotic creatures. <laughs> and they're from a little place called Balavorni, mm -hmm. which is a Gaeltuck village. And my mother describes them as incomprehensible in two languages. <laughs> and, but I remember when my granny, uh, she owned a pub in Cork, and the good room was opened on a Sunday morning, and myself, and, and of course my triplet uh, cousins are so unusual, they're still referred to in the village as the three twins, right? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, imagine it, the fucking three twummy twins, Jesus, right? And, uh, but I remember this good room thing when I was a kid, like I was about eight, and my granny would, would open the good room, and we'd all meet myself and the three twins be sitting there. And, with, you know, and, and my granny then would give us Waterford crystal goblets <laughs> to be drinking our my waddy out of. And you're like, oh, Jesus. And all the things going through your head. And, of course, you weren't allowed to speak to the good people until they spoke to you, right? And I've always been intrigued about what was going on there. And what was going on was my granny was pretending that she was posher than she was, yeah. right? Because she didn't have the self-esteem yeah. To say, listen, I own the local pub. I know what you fuckers are up to, 
right? Yeah. I know everything about you. And then the local, I don't know, Fine Gael solicitor would come in. And there's a weird, you know when Cork people answer the phone yeah. in the old days? And the accent changes completely. <laughs> That's like, not just Cork. And it kind of goes from, That's... like, I mean, you know, it kind of goes, I remember my granny, used, her voice went from, I don't know, some, it just sounded like a cross between the Queen Mother and Marty Morris. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. and, but you're sitting there as a kid, and I've always thought, what is this? And this is about our self-esteem issue. That my granny, who was a really cool woman and was really decent, felt socially inadequate. And in the good room, her accent changed, and the my wadi and the gumblets, just to try and pretend we were good as you. So to come back to your point about dealing with not just multinationals, all things that we feel are a little bit better than us, mm -hmm. that that good room mentality remains. And it's really, really interesting. So I think with the multinationals. The multinationals have been unambiguously good for this country. Mm -hmm. There's 200,000 people working them. They pay not as much tax as they should do, but they pay eight billion a year. So let's look at the positives, right? Mm -hmm. And figure out, right? If we were to change our tax system, would they move or not? I don't think so. But the question is, what's the cleverest way of dealing with this over the next couple of years? Is there another way? And I've always thought that we should deal with multinationals. We should regard them like the Norwegians regard an oil find. So Norway found oil in the 60s. Out of nowhere, it's like, wow, okay, this is cool. And what they did, like, could you imagine if we found oil? <laughs> imagine the fucking craziness of it. Be like in Sonny Abacha going mad. Yeah. It was a Nigerian gentleman, Sonny, who pocketed most of the oil of Nigeria. Imagine Hahi with an oil find. Oh, for fuck's sake. But, so the, so, but the Norwegians, being good Norwegians, said, OK, we found oil, and what we're going to do is we're going to create this huge pension fund. Norway's pensioners are fully funded for the next 362 years. Jesus right? Christ. Because they haven't spent it. They said, OK, right? Whereas that's... <laughs> but think about the multinationals, right? The multinationals are a bit like an oil find for us, right? Because it's a one-off. Nobody else is doing it. The Norwegians take the oil money and they convert it into the shares of big companies. The shares of big companies keep rising. The Norwegians get all the dividends. They don't take them out now. They just have it there for everyone, right? So that's this idea of having a stake in society. If you're born in Norway, you know you have a stake. I've always felt that the difference between what the multinationals do pay and what they ought to pay, which is about six or seven billion a year, we should sit down with them and say, we want you to give us that money but you don't have to pay it straight away in tax. Give it to us and we will invest it in shares of either your companies or other companies. Mm -hmm. So we begin to create a wealth fund and that gives people a stake here because the difference between people just surviving and people becoming comfortable is this idea of equity, owning something that actually makes money when you're sleeping, mm -hmm. right? And I think we should be really confident to say, hold on, there is another way of dealing with multinationals, which is a real win for us and is a win for them. And that just demands getting out of this good room mm -hmm. and thinking, let's think for ourselves, you know? And it can be done. And within 15 or 20 years, you'd have a wealth fund here, not for pensions. I don't understand why people are obsessed with pensions. We should have startup funds here. Because like, a pension is kind of a winding down fund. Mm -hmm. But what's the problem in Ireland is the kids don't have any capital. 
Mm-hmm. It's not that the old people don't, it's the kids don't have any capital. So if you could say, we have a wealth fund here, it's your collateral, if you want to open, if you want to do something, we will back you. And that, I think, could change this country immensely. Thank you. Jesus, I better have a drink after all that. So, like, on, on that... Do you know what I mean? So, think for ourselves. Don't be, don't be like, terrorised by other people's agendas. Say, hold on, we have something here. We can make it better. Rather than we have something here. Because the good room mentality not only exists with being unable to say, we're going to talk to you one-on-one, but it also exists with our willingness to take other people's slagging of our country. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've got to say, fuck off. Right? Yeah. You know, we're going to do our own thing here. But as well, n- nobody will be genuine in the good room. Not at all. It's, it's so you've a, got to get out of the good room. Of themselves. You've got to get out of the good room. And the good room, and it's funny, you know, this is all like, sometimes when I'm writing, you think, oh, it's all chit-chatty, chit-chatty. But it's actually, it ref- these good room things, these reflect deep idiosyncrasies in our culture, which go back many, many years. And I don't think we need that shit anymore. Mm-hmm. I think we're strong enough now. We can stand on our own two feet. Um, on that positivity, t- tell us how scary Brexit is. <laughs> Brexit, I don't know. One part of me thinks, do you remember that thing Y2K? Yeah. There's a little part of me, a little gremlin in my head thinks it'll be, you remember Y2K? Oh, Jesus, planes are going to fall out of the sky. And your computer's going to blow up in front of you. What, Y2K was so bad that I remember... On the eve, New Year's Eve 2000, I had a shitty Windows computer. I wasted my New Year's Eve 2000 staring in terror, <laughs> waiting for that clock and for everything to explode. <laughs> and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And maybe the reason is nothing happened is because what really terrifies you, humans, is being taken by surprise, okay? Like when a crash happens and nobody expects it, right? And the thing about Brexit, it's been ventilated so much and talked about so much that my sense, now this is just my sense, is that it'll be fudged in the next couple of weeks. What do you mean fudged? Fudged that basically what will happen is the Brits will accept some form of checks, okay? which are sufficient for them to suggest that their Brexit is still uh, in, in their Brexit is still together. It's this hard Brexit. And the European Union will accept that that's enough, and our government will accept that that's enough. I don't think... That's my sense. That Do you think the EU... It's in the EU's interest to give Britain a bad deal because if other countries see Britain doing all right oh, out yes. of it... Yeah. Like Italy or someone, they'll fuck um, off out of the EU too. Yeah, I think, look, I mean, the Brits have got this crazy delusion. They've actually many crazy delusions. <laughs> but they have, the crazy delusion is that you can leave the club and still get all the goodies. And that can't happen. Uh, you know, it just, it just can't happen. So, and I think our problem in Ireland is uh, because we're so porous to British media, you know, we, we, you can't avoid it. Like, I've been intrigued travelling a little bit around the continent. Nobody talks about Brexit. It's mm-hmm. like somebody else's problem. It's like, yeah, off you go. 
You don't, you don't see this in the front of the German papers or the French papers or whatever. And then, you know, the, the funny thing about Brexit, I don't know about you, but it's, it's brought out my inner provo, which is... <laughs> Which, which I never thought existed, you know? Someone's going to keep get that clip. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and it'll just be that online. Someone out there with an iPhone. It's on Twitter now already. Oh, bollocks. No, but by that I mean, you know, I'd forgotten how awful the English upper class were. No, really, you know, I mean, I think everyone's you know getting I mean? that sense. Like you, you get that sense. Like, but it's like, how many, how many bombs needed to happen for you no, to no, know no. what Northern Ireland was, no, no. at least? But, you know, the, the, the likes of, you know, Boris Johnson and Rees Mogg, like, yeah, I mean, you'd put a fellow like that in the zoo if it came ah, It's nuts, it was, yeah, yeah. You know, and it is kind of nuts. So, so you know, my, my sense, so these kind of Brexit jihadis over yeah. there, right? Uh, well, that's what they're kind of like, you know? That's a great way to turn your provo comment on its head. <laughs> They're the terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> McWilliams is in the rab, but at least Reese Mogg is a jihadi. But <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, so anyway, I'm, I can't fucking believe it. Anyway, but when you see these sort of uh, Reese Mogg's and all this, you 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 forget. I forgot those people existed. Yeah. Do you know, like, during all the Good Friday Agreement and going yeah. over to England and la la la. So, but my sense is that the Brits will do a deal that they might be able to sell. But my sense is that they'll do a deal with the EU. They'll come back to the Parliament. They won't be able to sell it. Okay? Mm-hmm. There will be an election. And then you have a totally different dispensation in the UK. And that election... Is it's what's amazing is that so some are saying they deli- they want to hand Labour a poison chalice. Yeah, and that's what Corbyn's trying to avoid. And but Labour have opened up the idea of a second referendum mm-hmm. on the terms. So this thing isn't over yet. Mm-hmm. You know that's what I'm saying. It's not over. But to come back to the Y2K thing, there's a huge industry. Yeah. There's a massive industry in the media and everything, building this up and editorials and Brexit. You know, I'm, and I'm sure I'm, there's, there's I'm many. invited to Brexit fucking breakfasts in this town, right? <laughs> you know, this oh, David, would you like to come along for breakfast? You know, and it's like PWC or some. some sorry, oh, I, forgot, I was about to say. But you know, so there is an industry. And I'm assuming there's people making money, like advising companies on Brexit proofing. Yeah, some people, someone's having a good Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's having a great Brexit that one. Inside in the Jacks doing a Brexit. <laughs> um But come on, does it not scare the shit out of you? No, it, no. Well look, I mean look the big the big well, no the deal big scary let's, thing let's, is let's, let's, the let's, north. The north, north. Okay, that's yeah. the big scary thing because that's what I'm the big scary thing is the north because Brexit has accelerated an ongoing process towards unification of this country. There's no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind that the, well, the, that the demographics uh, have changed profoundly. I was looking at, uh, they have a census every 10 years in the north and we have one every five years. So the last one they had is in 2011 and they break down the population uh, in every five year cohorts. And so the oldest people are those over 90 and the split, if you take Catholic Protestant to be more or less a good proxy for people's intentions, 
The split between Catholic and Protestant is 70% Protestant and 28% Catholic, and then a couple of don't knows in the middle. So that's basically the status quo around partition, mm -hmm. the people in Northern Ireland who are over 90. If you look at the people under the age of five, the entire thing has turned its head. Mm -hmm. The Catholic population has doubled, and the Protestant population is almost halved, okay? Because Protestants won't fuck. <laughs> and, uh, it's true, Calvinism, man. They're terrified of each other. Um, I might have to just make a, a small confession here. Uh, my, my wife is uh, a Northern Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> So, there you go. <laughs> and I can tell you, they do, no, no. Uh, <laughs> so our, our, little, our little kids are, you know, the Good Friday agreement, in, in, agreement incarnate. You know, they're, they're little mongrels. When they're down here, they're all GAA, and we're up north, they're all cricket. It's all fine. It's all... You learn, you learn, the best thing to do with the Northern Prod is to sleep with them. It's much easier. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, no, but, but, so if you look at the, the Jesus. Man, that's the fucking, someone's going to do a supercut. I'm in the raft. Let's have sex with all the Protestants. Anyway. Do you, ever, do you ever think that uh, so, so, you, yeah. you look a bit like a Dorian Gray version of Niall Boylan? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry, sorry. That's so fucking low. <laughs> That's a compliment. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I think that the... the I look the, like shopping, man. <laughs> the demographics are, 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 are screaming a united Ireland probably sooner than we think. And then you've got to see, does Brexit accelerate that or decelerate that and my sense it accelerates it so for us this is the big conversation but at what point here's my fear is that at what point of acceleration do you then start to see a community who are very protective of their identity who are afraid of disappearing kicking back because mm. well, we're not really that's, that's, seeing that quite loudly yeah. now you know but that would be my fear and, th and that's where ambiguity is a really good thing you know that uh, what I've done in the final few chapters of the of the, the of the, the new book that's out next week, no, no, that uh, <laughs> is is I, you know, I drove around. Uh, I went to uh, last July. I was asked to talk at the Seamus Heaney Centre in Balaki. Mm -hmm. Balaki is in South Derry, and so to go up, you know, it's you're driving up, you're driving up Dundalk, and you go a little bit County Down through Armagh, a little bit Tyrone into Derry, just driving around. And so not going to Belfast that I know very well, my wife, my wife's there, all our relations are up there in Belfast, but just going into rural, what they call mid-Ulster, yeah. right? And what, what I've noticed, because I drive up much more than most Southerners up the north, is the very flamboyant expression of loyalism yeah. in, in, in what used to be middle-of-the-road Protestant areas. So I could be in a town like Cookstown in County Tyrone, um, town like Armagh, Market Hill, all these little small places, and what would have been obviously a 12th of July march and procession has now become this outrageous sort of 
terrified loyalists kicking yeah. back. So I think, you know, the way in Belfast and around the size, there's a very, very good uh, index, you know, the size of the bonfire mm -hmm. and the fear of United Ireland, right? Yeah. And the higher the bonfire, the bigger the fear. And, 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 and our, our, we have to figure out in our heads how we're going to deal with a community which will only be about 15% of the population mm -hmm. post-unification. But we need to do a Mandela on these people. Mm -hmm. Mandela, when he first, what he did was he didn't first go to the black people. He went to the Afrikaners. Mm -hmm. He wore the rugby shirt during the World Cup. He said, I am going to protect you. I am going to help you get over this, right? We have to do this to Ulster mm -hmm. unionism. We have to say, your story can be our story. And we're going to listen to your tunes as well as our own. Because if we don't do that... Here's my fear of that, We have though. to do that. This is my fear. The nature of loyalist culture, right? The nature of an orange march and a bonfire, it's predicated very much on victory. Mm -hmm. it, an orange march and a bonfire only works when you're celebrating we won and we're here and we're not going away. How do you provide, how do you say to the orange men, you can have your culture, you can have your orange marches, your, your bonfire in a new country where now you've lost? You, well, you've that, got, but that's no, really, but, seriously, but, but that's, you, it's all victory, this. victory. It's reminding them, we won here now, stay underneath the boot. That's what it does. Like, how do you do that you, when, we, like, what's a British flag when the Brits are no longer running well, this the place? Is, like? I've thought about this, you know, that, you know, is the British flag a flag of convenience, right? It could be a Dutch flag. Or whatever. Um, but we've got to realise that real power and real leadership is understanding the anxieties of other people and helping them. Mm -hmm. That's real leadership. Real leadership is not wrapping yourself in a Celtic scarf and, you know, singing the four green fields, right? Real mm -hmm. leadership is saying, your anxieties are our anxieties, and we're going to help you. And it, you remember this idea of the crisis? Buy you time. We're going to give you 10 more years. We're going to give you 15 more years. But to begin to change the national story, and therefore really going out of our way to making them feel mm -hmm. that they have some say in this new country. And I think we can do it. I really do. I don't I'd like think, to think it. I mean, we can do it. You know? Of course we can. The one, the pessimism I have and, too And I know is... these people well. You know, I mean, this is, not, this is not a lumpen. Down here, there's a sense that, you know, unionism is a lumpen mass of people who simply say no surrender. There's all sorts of grey in that tribe, like there are in our mm -hmm. tribe. Okay, and it's up to us to understand their anxieties, and it's not up to them to understand ours, because as you say, at the end of the day, they're kind of losing their position. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be really generous, and, and I think we can do that. I hope so, but the other thing as well is that, like, what you're describing is actually the Irish, like the Irish flag is the green represents the nationalists, the orange represents the Protestants, the white represents the unity between the two. But they burn the Irish flag and they burn themselves on it and they don't see the irony. So, 
know. But, it, but, I, but I, I also I, think, look, we have to, we have to realise, and I come back to it, that real leadership is putting ourselves second and mm -hmm. really trying to understand what it is that they fear, mm -hmm. right? And maybe then, like, I mean, like, I know when, you know, when I first went up north and, and met my missus, the, the narrative was we were too Catholic. Mm -hmm. And now we're too liberal, right? So, <laughs> That's an interesting it's one. It's true, though, yeah. you know, because we were too Catholic. You're too conservative down there. Fuck, we go down south now and you're too conservative and blah. And then, and now, and we're, now we're too liberal because, you know. Uh, um, so there's always going to be a huge element. But it's up to us to break it down. And I think what we've created here in the last 30 years, with the legislation, with the recent legislation, with repeal, with being much more open, with having a big immigrant population, all these positive things that we've done here, and we've done them kind of despite ourselves, and they've just mm -hmm. occurred organically, we can present a picture to loyalism, maybe not extreme loyalism, maybe that's always gonna be difficult, but to the middle ground of unionism that is attractive. If we get over our own urge yeah. to win, and allow there to be a draw. Yeah. Thank you. Um, on that point as well, an important question I think we, we should all be asking ourselves too, because my darkest fear is in the event of a United Ireland, right? We, if we have this unionist minority and they do a little bit of a, an uprising, we will most likely see our own guards possibly committing like brutality against mm -hmm. this new protesting community. And we, we now have to ask ourselves, can we extend our social justice to stop that? Mm -hmm. And it's not nuts. Like, look at what Israel does. Look, like, like yep. Israel was set up to get away from the fucking Holocaust. And now they're repeating those actions on the Palestinians. Like, this is, it's, this is a human no, this thing. Is this is what humans do. Humans are cunts. <laughs> Collectively, I mean, Liberia, Liberia is an African country that was set up um, to, to provide freed slaves with a state in Africa, and the, the new, the former slaves of Africa went to Liberia, set it up, and became horrible rulers of the people that were living in Liberia. But, this is a, a human thing that we do. But blind by, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. There's loads of examples of the better side of human nature. There's loads of examples. If you look, actually... Flappy Bird. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Go on. Well, there's loads of examples. Like, the, most of... In the last 50 years, it, Western societies have become m more fair, much less violent, okay? Much more tolerant. This country, imagine... Think about what this country was like even in the 1990s. Yeah. And it's changed. And it's changed because of, you know, your man... So even fucking Europe, like, I mean, Jesus, Spain and Portugal had fascist governments up until the The Spaniards 70s, like. killed a million of their own people yeah. in a short period of time. You know, V.S. Naipaul, the, uh, the Indian writer, talked about India and him looking at India, and he talked about these, what he called, millions of little mutinies that occurred within the heads of the average Indian person mm -hmm. in the last while. And I think that's what happened here. You know, since, you know, the first repeal or abortion referendum, since the, the, the church going from a dominant position, 
What really happened here wasn't some great movement started from the top, but was like little mutinies going off in all our heads, in our, little, in our kitchens, in our homes, saying, I'm not putting up with that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that is an amazing, powerful, amazingly powerful force. And I think that we should look and harness those mutinies rather than look at the apocalyptic side. Mm-hmm. Because once you start talking apocalypse, it tends to happen. Because mm-hmm. words are unbelievably important. Yeah, words absolutely. are the most important weaponry humans have. And if we decide to have a conversation that is dictated by catastrophe and apocalypse, that will happen. And we probably have to get rid of words like unionists or orange men and things like that. I mean, the Freud, when Freud was doing his study on, on the the Holocaust, right? He had a book called Civilization and His Discontents. He says that the, that type of brutality happens when we dehumanize. Yeah. But dehumanization starts with labeling and having a name and putting people yeah. into groups. You've got to marry them. You got <laughs> We should have a masked campaign. We should have like Tinder for Northerners, you know? Swipe left for the prod. No, but I'm saying it's the only way you don't other people is you get to know them. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're no weirder than Kerry people. <laughs> <laughs> does, but does, does, you know, does a twelfth work if we all show up in solidarity? <laughs> no, How does can, that work? No, we can have, no, we can have Potemkin villages. You know, the Russians... Do you know what? Do you know what one of the keys could actually be? And I was thinking this in Belfast. How many, here, how many people here are drinking gin? A lot of people. Gin exists because of William of Orange. William of Orange conquered fucking England and the Battle of the Boyne and all that shit. He brought gin with him from uh, the, yeah. the Netherlands. And so that's a little positive example of orange <laughs> colonization. You're all enjoying your gin. You're, you are <laughs> drinking orange culture right there and then. And it's not too bad. <laughs> um, we've 10 minutes left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up the, to the audience and pass a microphone around and... Can you turn on the house lights a little bit, but not too much that it ruins the ambiance? <laughs> little bit more. Little bit more. There we go. This lady over there who, with her hand up saying, I have a question. Could we get a microphone over there, please? From Manahan. God bless you. <laughs> Hold on, we can give you a microphone. We can, we can do this in a technological fashion. Uh, where is the mic? Is it around the gaff? My voice is normally loud enough, so... Oh, God, it's really Eat the mic now. It's slightly... It's <laughs> underneath your chin, so... It... Um, I, I understand what you're saying about Northern Ireland. I love the fact that there would be unity, and maybe not. But then how do you think from, uh, like to bring that in like wh- how would it be like we would we're already like have a ho- homeless crisis academic like how do you think that we would be able to take on the economic fear of like yeah yeah yeah, yeah i just wh- wonder what you there? think of that well I, I, like, economically really, like if, no. we, if we get landed with belfast in the morning <laughs> like is that good or bad I, yeah i look at it as, it's like a kind of a custody battle right between and and here's the other thing really i was in belfast child. this morning the roads and the trains are amazing. So are we going to make their trains worse or our trains better? Because <laughs> you know, seriously, like, the, the infrastructure is better worse, up there. Of course. No, but it's a, it's a really, it's a very fair question. I'm, we're being 
the problem is that, is that demography is moving in one direction, and we can't change that. Well, we can, obviously, but it takes a while. Um, so there is going to be some border poll at some time, quite soon, that basically says to the Republic, there you go, that's yours. And then it's up to us to figure out what are the, the handover conditions and how long they're going to be and what are the terms are going to be. Um, I think economically we could quite easily absorb Northern Ireland, actually. I think I'm going to, I won't bore you with the numbers, but uh, the Republic's economy is so much bigger than the North's now. It's, it's, it's what is really amazing is in, at partition, 80% of the industrial production of this country uh, came from the three counties around Belfast, 80%. Uh, now, Irish economy is about eight times larger than the northern economy. So it can be absorbed uh, economically, but the problem is culturally and social and all these issues. Um, one of the reasons we probably have to fix the housing problem is because we've got a much bigger challenge ahead, which is called unification. Um, anyone else? Can I turn off the lights a little bit more? Because now I... Um, oh, someone used the light. I like that. Can we give the microphone to the gentleman there who put his phone up? <laughs> oh, you were taking a photograph of me. Okay, he wasn't looking. I thought he was being clever. Sorry, sir. This, this lady here with the, with the, the fetching uh, wrist. Yeah. Yeah. Just coming over here. I've got two questions. I have um, an intelligent question for David and a silly one for Blimey. Okay. <laughs> so my intelligent question is, when I was eight, I was brought into a billing society to put my communion money in. And that was, e um, there was a B involved. I can't remember who it was. EBS, maybe. EBS, and that's who I have my mortgage right now. What happened to billing societies or EBS in that there's no, you mentioned co-ops. Is that what billing societies were? Yeah. Um, and what, how do we get them back? And my silly question to Blind Boy is, will you sign my ocarina? Okay. <laughs> I have it in my handbag. Yeah. An ocarina is a Spanish clay whistle, was, by the way. I was about to say. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a Spanish clay whistle. Do you want to keep hanging yourself there? Uh, you're absolutely right. The EBS um, was privatised in about 1999. Um, the co-ops we have are the credit unions. Credit unions are probably the most representative financial organisation in the country. Um, they were set up by John Hume, interestingly, um, because John Hume felt that parts of civil rights was financial rights to actually be able to have your own financial organization uh, in Derry in the 1960s. So the credit unions are the nucleus. And the interesting thing about, the, because the credit unions exist, we have the infrastructure to create this cooperative movement. We just have to liberate it because there are many people in this room, I bet you, whose parents or grandparents 
went to the credit union and got money for education and got money for this, that and the other based on really local finance. And they're still there. They have 14 billion euros of deposits. That's a it, lot of money. Is using a credit union an act of resistance against <laughs> big bank? Seriously though, is it? I think, I, think, I think it comes back to something deeper than that, which was that there was a time where banks wouldn't give working class people loans. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes back to. Uh, small farmers, working class people, that you, you couldn't turn up at Bank of Ireland or AIB mm -hmm. and be entertained. So you went to the credit union, and I think they're really interesting grassroots financial organisations that provide the basis for cooperative housing. Anyone else from over here? We got someone? This gentleman with the illuminated hand. I've also got uh, two questions. So, um, first question, David, you, you talked about a lot of good ideas about solving the, the housing crisis and uh, other issues in the country. Why do you think it is that the government is actually not listening to some of those ideas? Um, and the second question is, have you ever thought about running for political office yourself? The second one's the easiest. Uh, no. And the first one, I, I don't know, like, I think that when, when, I, when I look at Ireland, you know, you, you, there's only five odd million of us here. You know, the, the problems are not that complicated and they're easy to solve and many other countries with much more problems have solved our um, issues quite quickly. Um, so then it strikes me that there is a resistance to change here, which is really quite deep. And, and one thing that worries me a little bit is that all this growth in the economy over the last 30 years has made people actually quite resistant to change um, because they feel they lose something. And so consequently, I think the system, my, when I look at the system, I think politicians come and go, but where the real dilemma in Ireland is in the permanent government, which is the top civil servants, the top echelons of the civil service. You know, when I look at the Department of Health, I think, okay, why has this not been solved? Most people have traveled to other countries with similar populations, and they have much better health services, and it's a management issue. It's actually a management issue, and I think that politicians, some of them actually, really do try their best. I really believe that. But I think where a huge resistance to change is deep in what people call the deep state. And we have a deep state, we really do. And it's the sort of the Mandarin class at the very top of the civil service. And they are the people who are resistant to new ideas. They're also the people who never pay when things go wrong, ever. I'll take uh, one, one last question. This lady back there. It's almost like I'm deliberately making the poor bastard who has the microphone's job difficult. <laughs> you have a mic Sorry. there, have you? Yeah, I do. Hi. How are you? Um, How's it going? Uh, I don't have an entire question. Essentially, uh, oh, we'll take ha half questions, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, half question. 
Uh, Blind Boy, I basically just wanted to say that I am very, very grateful for you and for the podcast. I was in the A&E with my first ever epileptic seizure that last July, and I was listening to your podcast. And from the hot takes to the cognitive psychology, you've helped me a lot. Um, Thank you. And I'm just really grateful. Fucking deadly. Thank you. <laughs> You're a great one for the L recovery. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. But what, one thing I will reiterate, right, regarding the cognitive psychology. Don't give me credit for that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I know, but I'm, and I don't, I'm not, thank you for it. That's fantastic. But just for everybody... That's called uh, psychology, and it should be taught <laughs> no, to us in school. No, you invented psychology. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be taught to our younger brothers and sisters in fucking school, because... Yeah! Here's, here's the thing with... Uh, here's the beauty of, of, of something like cognitive psychology or transaction analysis, right? If, if when, it's, it's like, when you hear it, okay, it's not like... Your experience of, of, of hearing it, it's not like you're receiving new information. It feels like you've been given the language to unlock something that you already knew. Do you get that? And that's why it's so fucking hell. It, it, it's, it's like it, it's there already, but you just, your tongue was tied inside your head. And it's like, oh, that's why I do that. I knew it all along, I just didn't have the fucking words. Psychology is a book full of words for all of the shit that is wrong with us that we don't need to be doing. <laughs> And one final thing. Um, I, I, was, I was moldy last night on Twitter and I lashed into Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yes! Um, but here's the thing with Jordan Peterson. Like, I can see why people like Jordan Peterson. The reason is, the man is talking about psychology, psychotherapy and philosophy. Brilliant things. He didn't invent them. Okay, and unfortunately, he's Trojan horsing in conservatism, uh, a little bit of social Darwinism, and also uh, a nice old bit of religion in there as well. You don't, if, if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson, you can find psychology in other places. Just be, be cautious, is what I'm saying. Because just anyone I know who loves him is also kind of racist and misogynistic. <laughs> um. But th thank you so much for that. I no, really appreciate that. No, you're welcome. That. I would just say that, like, obviously, I mean, you did invent psychology single-handedly. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've been, I'm going through therapy, and I have been for years, because I actually do have a personality disorder. And you mm -hmm. mentioned that what you say on your podcast doesn't apply to people who are mentally ill. Yeah. More so people going through mental health yeah. issues. But I think that when you go through therapy as well, like, I've done CBT, I've done DBT, I'm yeah. doing all this stuff because... <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, sometimes when you hear things over and over and over again, they don't entirely make sense, but one yeah. person says something in a certain way and it does, it clicks, and you democratise psychology like that and that, it makes sense. Thank you. Thank you so much. And You're welcome. Fair play to you for getting up and being so honest about your mental health. Thank you.
right, lads. It is, uh, it's 11 o'clock. We had a fucking wonderful evening. Thank you so much to you for just being a shower of sound cunts. <laughs> and uh, listening and having crack. And again, we achieved a podcast hug. <laughs> there was a lovely... That lovely collective mental energy where you just feel everyone is on the same buzz, the same wavelength, and it was beautiful to be a part of. So thank you so much for that. And thank you to my guest, David McWilliams, for democratizing economics. Thank you very much. Go in peace, you cunts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.